0: Microsoft says it has to lay off 10,000 workers, about 5% of its workforce. It's Thursday, January 19th. This is WBUR's morning edition. Good morning, I'm Deborah Becker. Coming up this hour, what Microsoft's layoffs mean for the tech industry. Also, New Zealand's Prime Minister plans to step down next month. She says she no longer has the energy for the job. President Biden tours areas of California damaged by recent storms. And one family tries to reopen the investigation of a Fall River police officer involved in a shooting five years ago. Plus, astronomers try to figure out what's causing a huge... A huge cloud of gas floating around a neighboring galaxy.
1: All the professional observatories have a much greater focal length so they're looking at very narrow fields of view and so they straight up just missed it.
0: forecast says rain and snow on the way tomorrow. It's 701.
2: Live from NPR News in Washington I'm Corva Coleman. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has notified Congress the U.S will reach its statutory debt limit today. It's just over 31 trillion dollars. Treasury can use extraordinary measures to cover the bills until early summer. Congress has to vote to raise the debt ceiling before then or risk an unprecedented national default. NPR's Susan Davis reports on the intensifying political battle in Washington.
3: House Republicans led by Speaker Kevin McCarthy say they want to extract spending cuts in order to agree to any debt limit increase. They're looking for cuts in everything but the Pentagon as part of the annual discretionary spending process, but also mandatory spending for programs like Medicare and Social Security as part of their goal to try to move the federal budget closer to balance. The White House says President Biden will not negotiate around the debt limit, which is for money Congress has already agreed to spend. A 2011 standoff over the debt limit roiled the stock market and resulted in the first ever credit rating downgrade for the U.S. government. So even political brinksmanship could have economic consequences. Susan Davis, NPR News, Washington. President Biden will visit California today. He'll view damage
2: from recent severe storms that have left at least 20 people dead, thousands of others evacuated. The storm damage is substantial, and California officials estimate it could exceed $1 billion. An influential group of public health professionals is cautioning that pollutants that come from cooking with gas are a public health concern. NPR's Jeff Brady reports the group says children, older people, and those with health concerns face a risk of breathing problems from nitrogen dioxide in gas stoves.
4: The American Public Health Association policy statement surveys the science and concludes action is needed. APHA member Emma Hines is with the group RMI, which encourages people to switch from gas to electric stoves. She was lead author of the statement.
1: We're calling on federal agencies and other
2: health professionals to recognize this link between gas stoves and health risks.
4: The statement calls for more public education about risks and how to mitigate them, and more research to better understand the problem. The American Gas Association disagreed with the basis of the policy statement, saying claims of a link between gas-fired cooking and public health concerns is unsubstantiated. Jeff Brady, NPR News. Authorities in California
2: are searching for actor Julian Sands. He went missing more than five days ago while hiking on Mount Baldy. Gloria Huerta of the San Bernardino County Sheriff's Department says conditions in the area where Sands vanished are difficult. The conditions are too dangerous. In fact, even some of the more experienced hikers are getting themselves into trouble up there, so we recommend that people stay away from that area. Julian Sands is known for roles in films such as The Killing Fields, A Room with a View, and Arachnophobia. This is NPR.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Well, we're expecting some snow after a stretch of unseasonably warm temperatures so far this winter. Forecasters say the Boston area could get one to three inches of snow tomorrow. National Weather Service meteorologist Bill Letham says even though most of the snow will fall in greater Boston tomorrow, there could be some issues during tonight's commute.
5: It could potentially be slick in some spots this evening, but especially for Friday morning, you know, folks will want to take it slow if they're traveling.
0: A winter weather advisory is posted north of Boston. Starting this afternoon, Letham says the state's northern border could get more than six inches of snow. Some local developers are criticizing Boston Mayor Michelle Wu's proposal to cap annual rent hikes at 10 percent. The Greater Boston Real Estate Board calls rent control a, quote, failed policy. That won't fix the region's housing crisis. But Northeastern University housing policy expert Barry Bluestone says rent control could be part of a larger solution.
6: So we need both uh, this form of gentle rent control, uh, but we also have to incentivize. development of
0: new housing. Wu's plan needs approval from the Boston City Council, the state legislature, and the governor. The treasurer of the state Republican Party is sharing emails with the state committee indicating that the party chair may have violated campaign finance laws. The emails suggest that party chair Jim Lyons coordinated opposition research into the private life of Governor Maura Healy when she was running for office. More from WBUR Steve
7: Brown. State Party Treasurer Pat Crowley sent copies of several emails between Chairman Lyons and the head of a private firm regarding investigations into personal relationships Healy may have had while serving as Attorney General. The emails indicate Lyons attempted to have a political action committee pick up the $52,000 tab for the investigation. If that's true, it would be a violation of state campaign finance laws. Crowley said it's in his opinion that Lyons, as chairman, hired the firm to do the work. The turmoil comes just two weeks before state committee members are set to hold an election for party chair. Lyons has said he wants to be reelected. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown.
0: A New England hate group is claiming responsibility for disrupting a drag queen story hour. In Taunton over the weekend, officials tell the Boston Globe that members of the group NSC-131 were escorted out of the event after they were verbally disruptive. The group's leader is facing civil rights violation charges in New Hampshire after the group allegedly hung a racist banner on a highway overpass in July. The time is seven minutes past seven.
8: WBUR supporters include Charles Schwab, dedicated to serving clients with 24-7 live support. The people at Schwab are committed to helping clients on their investing journey. Learn more at schwab.com.
0: In sports, Bruins beat the Islanders on the road yesterday. The final score was 4-1. to one. The team will, will stay in New York, where they'll skate with the Rangers tonight. Celtics face off against the Golden State Warriors at home tonight. It's the first time the Warriors will play at the Garden since last year's NBA Finals. In our weather f- forecast, once again, it should be clear this morning, but precipitation comes in later this afternoon and continuing really until tomorrow night a winter weather advisory goes into effect in areas north of Boston this afternoon a coastal flood advisory is posted for Boston in some areas south of the city starting tomorrow morning the rain begins tonight it will mix with some snow not a significant accumulation tonight but one to three inches expected before the snow ends tomorrow night it is 38 degrees right now
9: in Boston It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington. And I'm a.
10: Martinez in Culver City, California. Microsoft is laying off 10,000 employees. It's the latest tech company to announce massive cuts to its workforce as the industry faces one of its sharpest downturns in a decade. NPR's tech reporter Bobby Allen joins us now to discuss what's driving the slowdown. Bobby, it seems like every other day brings some other announcement about a tech company laying off staff. I mean, what's going on here?
11: Yeah, it really does. So, if you listen to tech executives explaining the layoffs, they tend to put it this way. The pandemic set off a frenzy of new hiring. Big tech companies brought on thousands of new employees to help, you know, all of us move more of our lives online. But now that the pandemic sugar high is fading, they're looking at their headcounts and realizing they just have too many people and in Microsoft's case it's 10,000 too many people but Amazon has laid off 18,000 Facebook parent company meta has cut 11,000 positions Twitter has reduced its staff by two-thirds this is happening a across the whole industry right now
10: all right now that's the explanation from executives any other competing theories explaining why Silicon Valley is uh, shedding so many jobs
11: there are other theories out there let's take Microsoft as an example it's Not a company that's exactly hurting for money right now. In its last quarter, it reported nearly $18 billion in profits. Last year, Microsoft moved to buy video game maker Activision Blizzard for $69 billion in cash. So skeptics ask, does it really need to be slashing jobs right now?
10: So are you saying, Bobby, that some tech executives might be actually using the current moments as an excuse to lay people off when they might not really be needing to?
11: yeah that is one theory i mean now inflation is high and corporate spending has slowed but big tech should have the wherewithal to push through it the theory goes now microsoft's cuts represent about five percent of its workforce but it's still a lot of people to lose their jobs there's a tech jobs data tracker called layoffs.fyi and it found that at least one hundred and fifty thousand tech jobs were cut last year This really is a stunning reversal because for years, for really more than a decade, the tech industry has just been on a tear, totally unchecked growth spurt, and now it's just really slowing down.
10: So what's the job market then look like for the tech workers uh, after they've been let go?
11: Yeah, so it's better than many. I mean, one survey found that eight out of ten techies who are laid off find a new check job within three months of starting their search. So that is to say that techies can quickly land on their feet, but surely not all of them, right? I mean, another thing to consider is that tech relies heavily on immigrant workers. And, you know, when you're on a visa that's tied to your job and you're laid off, the clock starts ticking for you to quickly find another employer sponsor. So many families are just sort of struggling
10: right now thinking,
11: am I going to be laid off? And if so, is that going to cause a serious crisis?
10: Is there anything that can be gleaned off of the tech industry's uh, slowdown right now that uh, maybe the broader economy might uh, be facing soon?
11: Yeah, so there are some experts who say that the tech industry's pullback is specific to Silicon Valley but the tech world is seen as a economic bellwether it's a huge employer multi-trillion dollar industry the companies are on the cutting edge and they intersect with just about every industry in some fashion so honestly it's hard to see a tech downturn not having some fallout for other parts of the economy but it's just too early to say
9: definitively if that's the case All right, NPR's Bobby Allen thanks a lot for your reporting thank you a Margaret O'Mara follows the tech world from her perch at the University of Washington. She is also the author of The Code, a history of Silicon Valley that I've been listening to as an audiobook while I run. So it's great to talk with you directly. Good morning. Thanks so much, Steve. Uh, Two theories we just heard there. One, that the tech industry sees a recession. Uh, The other is that they're just cutting to cut. How do you see it?
12: Yeah. um, Yes. And (laughs) I mean, the tech is uh, tech industry is part of the broader economy and the seas are stormier than they were a year ago. We have rising interest rates. Low interest rates fueled a lot of the tech tech boom of the last 10 years because it put a lot of cash flowing into uh, startups and as well into investment in big companies like Microsoft. And then the pandemic was this, as Bobby mentioned before, an extraordinary couple of years of tech dependence, right? People were working at home and learning at home and everyone needed the platforms and the software that these large companies provide.
9: If you're a tech executive, do you face special pressure because you are not just expected to profit? You are expected to profit ridiculously and grow massively all the time.
12: Yeah, I, I think that's right. We've seen this extraordinary run-up in growth. You look at the charts of uh, growth in employee headcount and growth in stock price and market capitalization. It just goes up and to the right uh, for the last several years. It's been about a decade of extraordinary scaling up across the industry, not just the really big tech prat- platforms, but everything. So that creates a standard that is, um, and, and you know, tech has always been a very growth-oriented industry from the very beginning from when they first started making microchips in silicon valley more than 50 years ago
9: yeah of course they always have to worry about disruption if you're an existing company you have to worry about who's going to come up behind you or beside you or invent a new product or reinvent the market is this a special moment when companies have to worry about disruption they're struggling with ai trying to figure out how to profit enough on that they're worried about stagnant business models they're worried about a lot of political pressures a million things i can imagine
12: a million things, yeah. You've always got to keep moving forward, swimming like a shark, right? Um, and, and this is the great challenge, of course. These are the very, very large companies. They have hundreds of thousands of employees. They have very well-established and very lucrative businesses. Sometimes it's hard to really step back and, and invest in the new, new thing when you're making a lot of money with the old thing. This is a perennial problem in business, a dilemma, um, as they say. And and it is a, a real, you know, I think that... All All of these companies, Microsoft, Amazon, you see these CEOs, you know, with these cuts, they're they're cutting some parts and not others. They're trying to figure out what's the bet that I need to make on the next big thing. How do we catch the wave? And
9: that's critically important. Do you feel that you understand the bet that Microsoft is making right now?
12: Yeah, well, Microsoft is like a lot of these large companies because they're so large. They're doing a lot of things um, and they're making money doing a lot of things. But you see sort of choices to cut certain places and not others. um, Cut its uh, HoloLens uh, hardware operation, which does virtual reality headsets, you know, Um, and then in turn looking more towards AI. uh, They just made this really critical investment in OpenAI, the creator of ChatGPT, which is that um, bot everyone's been talking about that. Um, is apparently going to write all of my students' research papers from now on. So there's, you know, there, there are there are choices that uh, that that they're making, and uh, they're they're trying to again sort of see look into the future and and figure out what's what's going to be the right way to go.
9: Do you presume that AI is going to change the world as well as this industry?
12: Well, look, AI has already changed the world um, and computer scientists have been talking about it changing the world for a very long time. And we've been worrying about our future robot overlords since, gosh, since Basically, the first digital computer was invented in the 1940s. Honestly, uh, but it, you know, the, yes, we're we're at this kind of critical point where there's so much data, partially because of all the things we all have been doing online and giving these platform companies so much information about us and photographs and things that now machines have learned a lot and they are able to do things with more accuracy. But I shall say to all of my students and any other students out there, uh, it's not quite the same. The the chatbot. Write your papers as well as you can.
9: <laughs> Are you sure about that? Not quite because... yet. We're not. We're not there yet. <laughs> well, do you, does does a company like Microsoft, which is practically an old line company at this point, have a chance to get back on top if they were to dominate this new thing?
12: Well. Yeah, Microsoft is really interesting. You know, it has already, it's kind of had this renaissance in the last decade under Satya Nadella, the current CEO, right. who when he came in um, made a lot of job cuts. Actually, it was the last big layoff wave at Microsoft, was in 2014. And uh, Microsoft had made some bets, including on the Windows phone, on mobile phones, that um, by acquiring Nokia, the, the phone maker, and and decided that was not a good bet and moved into other things. So they've they've had this extraordinary growth spurt working on cloud software and hardware and a lot of things so you know don't count Microsoft or any of these companies out. Margaret O'Mara at the
9: University of Washington thank you so much. It's a pleasure, thank you Steve.
10: The Andromeda galaxy is one of the most photographed star systems in the universe. So astronomer Robert Feeson was puzzled when colleagues told him about a new photo that seemed to show a massive gas cloud floating nearby
4: and they returned a few weeks later saying no it's it's real i still didn't believe it
9: to double check mr fiesen enlisted help from an amateur astrophotographer
4: he came back a few days later saying it's actually real it's extremely faint but it's definitely real
9: that photographer bray falls says some of the world's biggest telescopes failed to catch this new feature because their lenses were trained on smaller
1: objects the reason the professionals didn't notice this is basically because it's too big. All the professional observatories have much greater focal length, so they're looking at very narrow fields of view to get lots of resolution. And so they straight up just missed it. The new
10: gas cloud, or nebula, has been named stratner Druschler sainty Object 1, or for short, sd This is
9: amazing. They didn't see the forest for the trees, (laughs) or didn't see the gas cloud for the something else. I don't know. Anyway, researchers want to know where SDSO1 came from, and Feazen, who teaches at Dartmouth, is helping to find answers.
13: It could be the remains
4: of an expanding shell of an old supernova remnant in Milky Way Galaxy, our own galaxy, and just happened to be seen in projection near the Andromeda Galaxy or it could really be associated with expanding gas around the Andromeda galaxy that we never knew existed. So it's a remarkably large nebulosity to be undetected for all its time up till now. Fiesen and other scientists will
10: keep on looking and Falls will keep on taking pictures.
1: There is kind of like a golden age coming up in terms of planetary nebula discovery and all kinds of nebula discovery that's possible by amateurs and this is uh it's kind of like the the start timer and like a race to find things is what this signifies for me. This is NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, could AI help meet the increasing demand for mental health care? It's 20 minutes past seven. I'm Susan
2: Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us.
14: We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. Is there a better way to care for dementia patients? The Netherlands and France think so. They've created Dementia Villages, where residents can live freely despite their memory loss.
15: Because it has to do with thinking
14: different and
15: looking at that person in front of you and looking at what does this person need now.
14: Can it work here in the U.S.? That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: In our weather forecast, clear this morning, wet weather moves in later today, rain and sleet this afternoon. It will continue tonight. Not a significant accumulation of snow expected in greater Boston tonight, but tomorrow, one to three inches possible before the storm ends tomorrow night. There is a winter weather advisory posted for areas north of Boston starting this afternoon. Temperatures today should get up to, or tomorrow rather, should get in to the 30s. And for Saturday, it'll be partly sunny with highs near 40 degrees. It's 38 degrees right now in Boston.
16: Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of VIX NyQuil Severe, a nighttime cold and flu medication designed to relieve up to nine cold and flu symptoms. More at vix.com. And from Your Part-Time Controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your Part-Time Controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. This is NPR.
10: This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And
9: I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. So many people need advice on their mental health in this country that there are not enough professionals to meet their needs. So what if a computer could help? Some people seek answers from an app on their phones. Artificial intelligence might address isolation or depression, although it also raises new ethical questions. NPR's Yuki Noguchi reports.
17: Chikura Ali overcame a traumatic childhood and several years ago opened Coco's desserts in St. Louis, Missouri. Her ornate cakes looked fit for baking shows, but those aren't even her favorite.
18: Chocolate chip cookies.
19: <laughs> so simple. <laughs> those are my favorite. My grandma used to make them.
17: But last February, things fell apart. A car accident left Ali, a single mom who also cares for her mother, hobbled by injury from head to
19: knee. I could barely talk. I could barely move. I felt like I was worthless because I could barely provide for my family at that moment. And now I lost my car. I can't even take care of my daughter.
17: Darkness and depression engulfed Ali.
19: The pain, my emotions. Migraines. Her
17: orthopedist urged her to find a therapist, but none were available. Plus, Ali could no longer afford health insurance. She had to close the bakery. That's stressful too. That was my second baby. So her doctor suggested a mental health app called Wysa. Its chatbot-only service is free, though it also offers teletherapy services with a human. The chatbot asks questions like, how are you feeling or what's bothering you? It analyzes answers, but doesn't generate its own responses. Instead, it draws from a database of psychologist-approved messages that deliver support or advice about managing chronic pain, say, or grief. That is how Ali found herself on the frontier of technology and mental health. Initially, she felt silly opening up to a robot. I
19: thought it was weird at first. Because I'm like, okay, I'm talking to a robot. It, it's not going to do nothing. I want to talk to the therapist. <laughs> but that bot helped.
17: Confined to her bed, she could text it at 3 a.m.
19: I was just starting chatting with it. How you feeling today? I'm not feeling it. So then it would give me these little options that I could do. I was like
17: honestly. a simple exercise or deep breathing or listening to soothing music. It focused Ali on things other than pain, and it reminded her of the in-person therapy she did years ago.
19: What I noticed it was doing CBT therapy, that cognitive behavioral therapy, is not a person, but it makes you feel like it's a person because it's asking you all the right questions. And that is really what a therapist does.
17: Paola Pedrelli is a psychologist and professor at Harvard researching uses of AI to monitor mental health.
19: Reflect back what you're saying, naming and labeling your emotion. And now, chatbot are able to do that.
17: Companies and researchers like Pedrelli are looking at various ways technology might improve therapy. Motion sensors and online activity on things like apps might help flag a patient's worsening mood. AI might also alert therapists when patients skip medications or might keep more detailed notes about a patient's tone or behavior during meetings. Other forms of AI interact directly with patients like Chukura Ali, serving up suggestions based on known therapeutic methods. Skeptics warn there hasn't been enough research or regulatory review and point to dangers of a chatbot misunderstanding or responding inappropriately. Many people may not be receptive to it, but research also shows some people prefer machines. There's no stigma with no human at the other end. Ali says as odd as it might sound, she relies on her chatbot.
19: I think the most I talked to them was like seven times a day. (laughs) She says mostly it helps her help herself. Or I will go to my physical therapist appointment. When before, I'm like, no, I can't do it today. I'm going to have to reschedule it. That's precisely why Ali's doctor, orthopedist Abby Cheng, suggested she use the
17: app. Cheng treats physical ailments, but says almost always mental health challenges accompany those. Sometimes if we can't address the mental health aspect of things, we feel stuck. And patients, in turn, get stuck because of a lack of therapists, transportation, insurance, time, or money.
19: In order to address this huge mental health crisis we have in our nation and even globally, I think digital treatments and AI can play a role in that and at least fill some of that gap in the shortage of providers and resources that people have.
17: But getting to that future also requires figuring out thorny issues like health privacy and legal liability. And even AI's proponents argue computers aren't ready to replace human therapists, especially for handling people in crisis. Cindy Jordan is CEO of PixHealth, a company that uses AI as part of its service to help people who feel chronically lonely. She worries, for example, about a chatbot responding to a suicidal person
0: oh, I'm sorry to hear that, or worse, I don't understand you. That makes me nervous. You know, we have not reached a point where, in an affordable,
17: scalable way, where AI can understand every sort of response that a human might give, particularly those in crisis. So as a backup, PIX staffs a call center with people who call users when the system identifies them as potentially in crisis. But for more routine support, Chakura Ali says she believes technology could help many more people and recommends the app to all her friends. She constantly finds herself passing along mental health advice she learns from it.
19: I wasn't like this before, but now it's like, what you gonna do today to make you feel better? How about you try this today? (laughs)
17: It isn't just the technology trying to act human, she laughs. She's now mimicking the technology. Miki Noguchi, NPR News.
9: Hey, listen, I'm telling you person to person if you or someone you know may be considering suicide or in crisis, call or text the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Just three digits 988. Tomorrow on Morning Edition, how did a common household appliance become the subject of disinformation? Stream NPR on your smartphone or tablet by searching for your local member station online. This is NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on Morning Edition, despite the storms in California, some experts say the long-term issues with the water supply remain bleak. And don't forget to check back on the news with WBUR again tonight with the WBUR mobile app. Tap in to listen while you're running errands or heading home from work. It's 7.30.
8: WBUR supporters include Aviv at New England Medical Group in Milford and Hingham, Mental Health and Addiction Services with Animal Assisted Therapy for Adolescents, NewEnglandMedicalGroup.com, and Thought custom builders of high performance, healthy homes, and places that strengthen our communities, supporting Climate Interactive's mission to help people everywhere create a sustainable and equitable future with their online climate solutions simulator climateinteractive.org, and thoughtforms-corp.com.
20: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The federal government is expected to reach its borrowing limit later today. Congress and the White House are under pressure to raise the debt ceiling to prevent a default. NPR's Susan Davis says the Treasury Department can likely prevent a debt default until sometime in June
3: even political brinksmanship can have consequences. Back in 2011, Congress did ultimately raise the debt limit, but the fight around it had an impact on the stock market. It also resulted in the first ever credit rating downgrade for the United States government. So it's not just about raising it, it's about how quickly and how calmly to the markets lawmakers can do it, or it could have still have an economic impact.
20: The national debt now tops $31 trillion. A judge in New Mexico is ordering Solomon Pena to be held without bond. Pena is a former Republican statehouse candidate accused of paying four men to carry out a series of drive-by shootings at the homes of several Democratic elected officials. Raul Torres is New Mexico's attorney general.
7: What I
21: hope this will inspire in not just elected officials but in the public at large is a dialing back of the rhetoric.
20: Torres was speaking to ABC's podcast, Start Here. Peña lost his race in November. Nobody was injured in those shootings. This is NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Some state lawmakers are asking regulators to rein in energy costs this winter. The Massachusetts Department of Public Utilities approved major rate hikes after power companies said they needed to raise prices because of the war in Ukraine and other issues. Now, in a letter obtained by the Boston Herald, lawmakers are asking the department to reverse course and lower prices. The legislators say they're worried about people's ability to pay. Andrea Campbell has made history as the first black woman to become Attorney General of Massachusetts. In her inaugural address yesterday, Campbell pointed to the past when people of color did not have the same rights as those who are white, and she says the law has not always been an equalizer, but her office will ensure that government is responsive
19: there are many laws that are meant to make society more fair and keep us from discrimination and hate on the books, but they must be championed and enforced vigorously to ensure our state's
3: people feel that, experience that fairness, and are welcomed
22: everywhere they go.
0: Campbell says her office will work to protect seniors, enforce gun laws, and protect abortion rights. It's a busy season for sea turtle strandings on Cape Cod. Turtles often get stuck in Cape Cod Bay when they migrate south for the winter, but the numbers have almost quadrupled over the last decade. Researchers say warming oceans may be causing the turtles to migrate further north in the summer and then stay longer than they should. Dr. Melissa Joblin, an associate veterinarian at the New England Aquarium says when the water turns colder, it causes the turtle's body temperatures to drop and results in a variety of health problems.
23: They become really dehydrated because they're not physically able to go and eat. They're not able to swim around normally, so they build up lactic acid. They're not taking really good breaths, so they start building CO2 in their bloodstream.
0: New England Aquarium staff cared for more than 500 turtles rescued between late November and early January. The time is 7.34. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by
24: William James College's online graduate certificate in school leadership, a DEI-focused principal prep program. Apply for summer at williamjames.edu.
0: In sports, Bruins are celebrating a win in what is the first of two road games in New York. The team outscored the Islanders 4-1 to one last night. They'll play the Rangers at Madison Square Garden tonight. Celtics are looking to extend their winning streak to eight games tonight when they take on Golden State. The Seas will hit the court in the Garden tonight against the Warriors at 7.30. In our weather forecast, mostly sunny this morning. Wet weather moves in later today, though rain and sleet. Not a significant accumulation expected tonight, but it continues through tomorrow with one to three inches of snow possible in greater Boston. Higher accumulations expected north of the city, mostly rain south of Boston. uh, Saturday, it should be partly sunny with temperatures in the mid-30s. It is 38 degrees in Boston.
16: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Dataiku, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. dataik And from Procter & Gamble, maker of ZQuill Pure Z's Gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at ZQuill.com and from the listeners who support this NPR station.
10: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez in Culver City, California.
9: And I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. The president of Vietnam had to resign this week. Nguyen Xuan Phuc took the blame for a corruption scandal. A bigger power remains in office, the ruling Communist Party. Bill Hayton is following all this. Uh, he's an associate fellow with the Asia-Pacific program at UK-based Chatham House, and he's an expert on this country that has become a big trading partner of the United States. Welcome to the program, sir.
25: Thank you for having me.
9: What was the alleged corruption?
25: The corruption scandals in Vietnam are massive in terms of numbers. The uh, There was a, a one about repatriating Vietnamese flying back from uh, foreign countries during the pandemic. That may have uh, netted $200 million for the people involved, and oh. another one to do with test kits to do with covid and and again tens maybe even hundreds of millions of dollars involved in there um so there's no doubt that there is corruption and that these guys have taken the fall for it but i think there's something bigger going on behind the scenes what is that well, I think what we're seeing is the public security ministry and the Communist Party hardliners really using these corruption scandals to push out the the more liberals uh, wing of the party um, and people who were becoming sort of too well known as individuals in order to reinstate party control. So, in some ways, it's a bit like what's been happening in China, where uh, Xi Jinping has been using corruption scandals to get rid of his enemies. Um, the the idea that the people left in power are not corrupt is is just not credible. It's just certain people get invested, investigated for their corruption scandals and certain people don't.
9: Granting that you think that that Communist Party leaders are using these corruption scandals, you seem to be describing to me corruption that would directly affect human beings. This isn't just somebody skimming a little bit off the top of a business deal. This is someone trying to get
25: back in the country and having to pay a bribe
9: and that sort of thing. Was there a lot of public pressure to do something?
25: There was it emerged very slowly, but because a lot of the people affected, you know, were connected to each other and to the world, um, the, the the stories began to to spread and to grow, and people realised it wasn't just me that had to pay this; that everybody else was paying it too. Uh, a lot of complaints, um, but it sort of it didn't really make that much impression really outside Vietnam, mainly because there were so few, you know, foreign journalists in Vietnam to pick up on these things. Um, but it really became a big big cause, and um, Mr Mr Chom, who's the leader of the of the uh, the communist party kind of used this and turned it against his political enemies in, in a very effective way
9: what does this mean for the united states which united states which has been cooperating more and more with vietnam as a kind of counterweight to china
25: I think it's a warning that actually these people are not rushing to embrace the United States you know, as an ally or anything like that, that they are very guarded of their own autonomy, um, their own ways of doing things, and that actually they see China more as an ideological partner uh, than the US. And, and so China, US, Vietnam's going to try and balance its relations forever. It's it's not going to be rushing towards the U.S.
9: Really great insights. Bill Hayton at Chatham House, thank you so much.
8: Pleasure.
10: California has been hit by a series of storms in recent weeks that's caused at least 20 deaths and lots of damage. But the wet weather out west is also responsible for a deep snowpack in the Rocky Mountains, which might be good for the Colorado River because the snow could boost depleted reservoirs. The thing is it won't be enough to undo the impacts of the long-running drought from member station kunc
7: alex hager reports the snow is snowing the wind is blowing and high in the mountains of colorado the ski slopes are getting busy
13: to be small c is heavenly it's a heavenly day of skiing
7: bill phillips stands at the top of a lift at snowmass ski area near aspen where the flakes are piling up
13: it's a fabulous year and we've had
7: regular snow it's not just huge stumps But regular, really nice powder, fluffy snow to ski in. All of that powder is crucial for the Colorado River. Two-thirds of its water starts as snow in Colorado. This year, with totals well above average, spring snow melt could help refill Lakes Powell and Mead, the nation's largest reservoirs. But Brad Udall, a climate researcher at Colorado State University, cautions against getting too excited.
13: Everybody is so eager to make an early call on this. And invariably, you'll get caught with your pants down if you think you know
20: what's going to happen.
7: The Colorado River Basin has experienced more than two decades of mega drought. Udall says climate change is making this whole region drier. And even with snow totals at 130 percent of average, it would take more than one year of deep powder to make a real dent.
13: We would need five or six years at 150 percent snowpack to refill these reservoirs, and that is extremely unlikely.
7: Udall says warmer temperatures have already cut into the amount of snow that melts into the Colorado River. Since 1970, temperatures in the region have gone up by three degrees Fahrenheit. And on top of that, abnormally dry soil soaks up water before it can reach the places where people divert and collect it.
13: Man, we need to continue to plan for the worst here. That's what we've seen the last 23 years. That's what these warm temperatures continue to tell us. We have to plan for the worst.
7: But planning has gotten a lot harder lately. Cynthia Campbell knows this firsthand. She's a water management advisor with the city of Phoenix. The fifth largest city in the country gets more than a third of its water from the Colorado River. Lately, she's been keeping closer track of that high-altitude snow.
3: Our worst-case scenario from our perspective is that we have to be in the habit of annually looking to the mountains to see what is the precipitation.
7: Campbell says reservoirs provide a buffer against the fluctuation of dry years and wet years. But with those reserves shrinking, cities around the Southwest can only plan a year at a time.
3: That's just not enough time to make changes that you would have to make. But that is where we are. And so in some ways, we're living Is it the worst nightmare? (laughs) Might be.
7: Seven states use water from the Colorado River, including Colorado, Utah, and California. They've struggled to reduce their demand, threatening water for crops and hydropower that supplies electricity to millions. States can't agree on a plan to significantly cut back on use, so big water users are trying to stretch the supplies they already have. Adele Haj Khalil runs the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California, which stretches from north of Los Angeles all the way past San Diego.
5: One storm is not going to change the game. Whether we get a wet year or not, we need to continue focused on building the infrastructure we need to create local water supply. Haj
7: Khalil is talking about programs to reuse existing water, cleaning up sewage to make it drinkable, capturing stormwater, and incentivizing cutbacks to home water use. That's all to help provide insurance for the 19 million people whose taps draw from his system.
11: We have to be ready, and it will be on us if we're going to take the right actions today to
13: invest and build the necessary infrastructure.
7: And as climate change keeps shrinking the snow that supplies water to people and farms across the Southwest, the need to adapt is only getting bigger. For NPR News, I'm Alex Hager in Snowmass Village, Colorado.
10: This is NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Coming up, truck drivers look to Congress for help finding places to park and rest. And in the next hour of our program, the latest on the debate in Washington over the nation's debt limit. In our weather forecast, clear this morning, wet weather expected later today, rain and sleet continuing through tomorrow. No snow accumulation expected by tomorrow morning, but one to three inches possible before the snow ends tomorrow night. On Saturday, it should be partly sunny with temperatures up around 40 degrees. It is 38 degrees right now in Boston. In business news, the Lobster Pot Restaurant in Provincetown is up for sale. The listing price, $14 million. The waterfront property has been owned by the same family since 1979. The owner tells the Boston Globe he's looking to downsize as he gets older. Some Boston-area shopping malls are still not getting the same number of visitors as before the pandemic. Foot traffic at the Prudential Center was down almost 30 percent in December compared to the same period in 2019. Retail officials tell the Boston Business Journal the lack of foot traffic is because fewer people are in offices and hotels around the Prue. The time is 7:45.
16: Support for NPR comes from this station, and from Jarl and Pamela Moen, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people, and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. And from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation at R-w-j-f-dot-org.
10: This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez.
9: And I'm Steve Inskeep. Surely somebody in this country is hearing this next story while circling for a parking spot so they can relate to truck drivers across the United States. At the end of a long day, many struggle to find a place to park and sleep. Here's Frank Morris with our member station, KCUR.
26: If you think finding a place to park your car is a pain, Try parking an 80-foot-long semi-truck. Federal law requires truck drivers to stop and sleep every 14 hours, but there aren't enough places to park. This Petro truck stop in Oak Grove, Missouri has 300 spots. They all
9: fill up. Parking sucks, and truck stop tonight after 4 o'clock is pretty much full.
26: Leroy Hirschberger drives all night, every night, because parking, is easier by day. Michael Collins schedules his work around parking too. The early evening view of the truck stop from his parked cab explains why.
13: Well, you see it, there's really no parking. So around two o'clock in the morning, they're gonna be double parked everywhere. Double and triple parked everywhere because there's just nowhere to park.
26: When truck stops like this are jammed and rest areas are too, drivers park on freeway off ramps or side streets big retail parking lots or abandoned gas stations. There is one parking space for every 11 trucks on the road. One for 11 11 trucks. Todd Spencer, president of the Owner-Operator Independent Drivers Association, says truck drivers work under fixed rules that give them a 14-hour block of time to get their driving done before they have to park and sleep. The regulations require them to take a continuous 10-hour off-duty break. Where the truck stops, it can't move again for 10 hours. Truckers build meticulous travel schedules around those rules and known parking spots. But holdups at shipping docks or bad weather can scramble their plans. The problems especially acute on the East Coast, around big cities and some mountainous parts of the country. And it's not new. Driver Mike Nichols recalls a night in 1999 in New Jersey, the first time he found himself with no place to park. And i remember not getting a spot there and having to creatively find a spot off the
7: road parked basically in a vacant lot
26: drivers have been robbed and even killed parking like that finding spaces takes time sometimes hours it slows down freight and eats into drivers pay and it can get under their skin you know depending on where you're at or it feels like being homeless <laughs> because you don't know where you're gonna sleep and it's getting worse each year there are more trucks on the road But it's hard to build new truck stops. Even where there's land available, neighbors tend to resist sprawling all-night businesses that attract diesel trucks by the hundreds. George O'Connor, spokesman for the Owner-Operator Independent Drivers Association, says states can use federal transportation money to pour concrete slabs for visiting truckers, but they don't have to.
21: So truck parking is competing with bridge projects, for instance. I mean... If you're an elected official,
26: uh, are you going to go cut a ribbon in front of a bridge? Or are you going to cut a ribbon in front of a truck stop? There's a possible legislative remedy. Democrat and Republican lawmakers in Congress have teamed up to sponsor bills that would set aside more than $700 million to build spots. But passing those bills would require broader bipartisan buy-in to get over-the-road truckers a decent place to park. For NPR News, I'm Frank Morris.
9: are you leaving that spot? This is NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. There is another hour of Morning Edition just ahead. And then at 11 o'clock this morning, we have Radio Boston. Tiziana Deering is with me in the studio right now to give us
22: a preview of today's program. Good morning. Good morning, Deb. Steve keeps sounding cash a couple of times this morning, I noticed <laughs> on Morning Edition, feeling his oats this Thursday. We're actually going to have a very serious conversation, Deb, uh, at the top of the hour today with Congresswoman Ayanna Pressley, mm. uh, who will be joining us on the line. couple of things on our minds, but I think two big areas of focus. One is we are into the 118th Congress Uh, Our delegation no longer in committee leadership, et cetera. Um, Lots of signals from the House Republican Party on things that would run quite counter to what we've known to be Presley's agenda. So how she's feeling about the 118th, how she's planning to navigate it, et cetera. And then I know you talked just this morning in newscast about the the child pain reliever shortages. Mm -hmm. She and Elizabeth Warren and Lori Trahan sent a letter to J&J last week about that. What have they heard? What can they do? So a couple things we'll talk to her about.
0: All right. Sounds
22: good. Thanks,
0: Deb. Radio Boston Today at 11 here on
8: WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Simon & Schuster, publisher of Master Slave Husband Wife, an epic journey from slavery to freedom by Ilyan Wu, the true story of an enslaved couple's daring escape. Available now. And Lauren Holleran with Gibson-Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com
14: I'm Asma Khalid. As a political reporter for NPR, I talk to people around the country about their lives and their needs. And I believe there is one thing we all need, a news source we trust tens of millions come to NPR for exactly that. When you donate your old car to this station, we'll turn it into tomorrow's news, the news you trust. Here's how. Learn
17: more at wbur.org slash cars.
0: You're listening to Morning Edition on 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. A local family is calling for a new investigation into a fatal police shooting in Fall River. That's because the officer involved was recently arrested on charges of filing false reports in another case. The family members say more scrutiny could unravel an alleged cover-up of their relative's death five years ago. Reporter Ben Burke from The Public's Radio has our story.
5: Last November, the FBI arrested Fall River Police Officer Nicholas Hoare and charged him with a felony, beating a suspect outside police headquarters and filing false reports to cover it up. It's not the first time Hoare's been accused of excessive force. Since he followed his brother and his father into the police department in 2016, Hoare has been investigated for excessive force in five other cases. Local authorities exonerated him each time until a suspect brought this latest complaint to the FBI. Hoare, whose attorney didn't respond to my interview requests, pleaded not guilty at his first hearing in federal court. Now, as the case triggers a deeper examination of his credibility, one family is hoping the FBI will take a closer look at another case from Hoare's past, the fatal shooting of 19-year-old Larry Ruiz Barreto. They covered up the
13: case since his brother works in internal investigations, and it was him that hid the case. The father is an important person in the police department, and he helped his son.
5: That's Dimex Ruiz Hernandez, who witnessed the death of his son Larry firsthand. I
13: know the truth will come to light. I know that God will
5: do justice. The fatal shooting that Dimex is talking about happened on a Sunday night in November 2017. Dimex, his son Larry, and some friends... We're at an industrial park in Fall River, waiting for a car race to start. Police broke up races there pretty often. In fact, just the night before, Officer Hor had warned racers not to come back. But on the night of Larry's death, a woman who happened to be driving by got scared by the sound of an engine backfiring. She also saw smoke, which came from a substance street racers light on fire to give their tires more
25: traction. nine one one line recorder. What is your emergency?
23: Hi. Hold on. Hi. Um. I was just driving on Airport Road, and there's a lot of cars, and there's a car that's, like, smoking, and I just heard, like, two gunshots. So I don't know if there was an accident or if someone's, like, getting killed right now.
5: Officer Hoare and another policeman, Alan Carrero, later told investigators that on their way over, the possibility of gunfire put them on edge. But when Hoare arrived, he sent a transmission over the police radio, indicating that it seemed like a routine nuisance. He said, street racers again. Sixteen seconds later, another transmission came in over the police radio, relaying that the situation had escalated.
4: Shot fired. Shot fired.
5: There are conflicting accounts about what happened during those 16 seconds before Officer Hoare fired his gun. Since there were no body cameras or cell phone videos, investigators pieced together what happened, mostly from the memories of eight eyewitnesses. The two police officers, Hoare and Carrero, made their statements four days after the shooting, after they'd met with attorneys and a representative from their police union, who sat with them during their interviews. The officers say Larry drove his car straight into Hoare's legs, knocking Hor onto the hood of the vehicle, where he drew his weapon. Here's Hor telling investigators what he says happened next. I said, shut it off, shut it off. The car revs up, jolts forward, and I'm like, I'm gonna fall off this car, and I'm gonna get run over. Officer Hoare shot Larry six times. He says it was in self-defense. But during separate interviews, six civilian eyewitnesses all told investigators that they never saw Larry's car crash into Hoare. Four of them say Larry's car never moved at all. Larry's father, Dimex, was sitting behind Larry in the car when he says Officer Hoare approached them with his gun already drawn. Dimex says Officer Hoare was shouting commands in English that Larry struggled to understand.
13: The cop that quickly blocked my son's car came out with a pistol in his hand. He he stood next to the vehicle, next to the driver's side where the front tire is, and pointed his gun inside and shouted, Put
1: your hands up.
5: Dymex says his son reached for the stick shift before raising his hands. Contrary to what the police said, Dimex claims the car never moved.
13: When he put the car in park, the the cop tapped the windshield with the gun two times and fired two shots. He backed up a bit, then the gun fired.
5: A friend in the passenger seat, Eusebio Famania, remembers the shooting a little differently than Dimex. He told investigators that Leary was driving forwards, slowly. Famania thought it was an attempt to get the officer to move out of Leary's way. I spoke with Famania several times for this story, but he wouldn't do a taped interview. He says his last interview with detectives created tension with Dimex, who used to be his friend. Today, Famania says the district attorney twisted the meaning of his words in a final report that cleared Hoare of wrongdoing. Famania claims he was clear with investigators that Officer Hoare never got knocked onto the hood of Larry's car. Here's an important exchange from his interview, where investigators press Famania on whether Larry's car ever made contact with Officer Hoare. Did the officer have to brace himself at all? Uh, no, I don't, I don't believe so. At so. no time, and did, he did you see any of his body, there? upper body, on top
6: of Larry's hood of his car because he's pushing him back? Did he? Uh, like, no, he actually, when he shot, he ended up pushing back. He ended up, like, taking a step back and then... Taking a step
5: back. Yeah. Okay. Even though Fomonia says the car never crashed into Hoare, the Bristol County District Attorney wrote that Fomonia's statements were enough to confirm that Hoare shot in self-defense. The DA also cited crime scene photos showing Larry's car in a collision with a police cruiser. Larry's family maintains those photographs were staged by the police. When I asked about the possibility of reopening this case in light of Hoare's recent charges, the district attorney's office and the FBI declined to comment. For now, the family is relying on a wrongful death lawsuit they filed as a way to re-examine evidence that their lawyers say the DA overlooked. If the lawsuit goes to trial... It will be a jury that reviews this evidence, which includes a blurry surveillance video that the family's lawyers claim is visual proof that Larry's car never moved. And at the end of that trial, which could still be years away, the jury will make another attempt at determining the truth of what happened to Larry Ruiz Barreto. For WBUR, I'm Ben Burke with The Publix Radio.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR, forecast says some wet weather later today. Rain mixing with sleet, not a significant accumulation overnight, but we could get one to three inches before the snow ends tomorrow.
2: 38 degrees right now in Boston at 8 o'clock. We're funded
24: by you, our listeners, and by ZTech Associates, providing on-site and remote IT support, cybersecurity, and compliance for Boston-area biotechs, financial firms, and more. ZTechNet.com. I'm All Things Considered host Lisa Mullins and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: The U.S. is expected to hit its debt ceiling today, raising alarms about a potential economic crisis. It's Thursday, January 19th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Coming up this hour, the debt debate in Washington. Democrats want to raise the debt ceiling without conditions. Republicans want spending cuts.
21: Lighting the fuse and thinking that, you know, you could stomp it down before it reaches dynamite is not a very good strategy.
0: Also this hour, New Zealand's Prime Minister announces plans to step down, plus we go to the beach to see the offshore vineyard wind project in Barnstable.
7: Pulling the cable in and connecting it with the the onshore cable is is sort of the the milestone that really connects offshore and, and onshore.
0: FORECAST SAYS RAIN AND SNOW DEVELOPING LATER A FEW INCHES IN BOSTON BY
2: TOMORROW. IT'S 8.01. LIVE FROM NPR NEWS IN WASHINGTON, I'M CORVA COLEMAN. TREASURY SECRETARY JANET YELLEN HAS TOLD CONGRESS THAT THE FEDERAL GOVERNMENT WILL REACH ITS DEBT CEILING TODAY. THAT IS THE LIMIT THE FEDERAL GOVERNMENT CAN BORROW TO PAY BILLS THAT IT HAS ALREADY INCURRED. HOUSE REPUBLICANS HAVE INDICATED THEY DON'T WANT TO LIFT THE DEBT CEILING WITHOUT DEEP FEDERAL SPENDING CUTS. White House spokeswoman Karine Jean-Pierre says the Biden administration won't negotiate over the debt ceiling.
24: It is something that should be hap- that should be done without conditions. There should be we should not be negotiating around it. Uh, it is the it is the duty, the basic duty of Congress to get that
2: done. In the meantime, the Treasury Department is shifting some money around to cover the bills in the short term, but that tactic will not last past June. The union representing pilots at Southwest Airlines is asking members for a strike authorization. No strike is imminent. From member station KERA, Toluwani Osibamawa reports the call to action comes after Southwest canceled or delayed thousands of flights over the holidays.
19: The Southwest Airlines Pilots Association wrote in a statement the airline hasn't properly discussed or committed to a plan to rectify the December meltdown. Casey Murray is president of the Southwest Airlines Pilots Association. He said there's also been little progress in negotiating contracts.
26: We've seen meltdown after meltdown, and, and as we move forward, we think that um, we can partner and and really try to correct some of these inefficiencies.
19: The vote for a strike authorization is scheduled for May. Southwest Airlines and its pilots union are set to resume negotiations Tuesday. I'm Toluani Osibamuo in Dallas.
2: The state of Alabama is turning to the Federal Environmental Protection Agency to help extinguish a landfill fire that has been smoldering for nearly two months. NPR's Debbie Elliott reports it's burning mostly underground at an unregulated private landfill near Birmingham.
14: Alabama Governor Kay Ivey has declared a state of emergency and asked EPA to take the lead responding to the out-of-control fire. It's been burning since at least November 25th, prompting complaints about ongoing exposure to toxic smoke and foul smells. Alabama environmental officials say they don't have the expertise to put out an underground fire of this nature with an abundance of organic fuel that water can't reach. Environmental Landfill, Inc. accepts vegetative matter such as yard waste and tree limbs, and is not subject to state oversight. But authorities have found unauthorized waste at the facility. Nearby residents have filed a class-action lawsuit over the health effects of the fire. Debbie Elliott, NPR News.
2: You're listening to NPR News from Washington.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. There could be renewed debate over police officers in Boston public schools. An education consulting group says city schools should consider creating their own independent police force. The city removed uniformed police about a year and a half ago, but some say officers are needed to help address violence. Mayor Michelle Wu has said she opposes police officers in schools. Cambridge officials are promising action on implementing new ways to respond to mental health crises. The Cambridge City Council held a special meeting yesterday to address the fatal police shooting of 20-year-old Arif Saeed Faisal earlier this month. Cambridge police say Faisal was fleeing with a large knife and he refused to drop it. Cambridge Police Commissioner Christine Elo said officers were trying to contain a potential threat to the community when they chased Faisal through about five
19: blocks of Cambridge so it was not an option for us to leave that scene or to not pursue him as he's running through Cambridge Port with this large knife.
0: Dozens of people spoke at the meeting and asked the city to fund alternative ways to respond to behavioral health emergencies. Many residents questioned Cambridge's $73 million police budget and asked if some of that money could be diverted to alternative response programs. The meeting was recessed until next week. Middlesex County's Anti-Hate Task Force meets this morning. It was formed in 2020 to respond to bias and hate-motivated crimes in the country. Middlesex DA Marion Ryan says last year, Massachusetts had the highest number of hate incidents in five years, and she says such crimes can be reported to her office through its website.
19: You can go online, use the form to report incidents to our office. We are helping communities to respond to things that get reported,
17: so I think people feel more secure in reporting incidents. She
0: says she says today's meeting is open to the public. The time is six minutes past
8: eight. W B U R supporters include Orion with women talking screenplay by and directed by Sarah Polly, starring Rooney Mara, Claire Foy, Jesse Buckley, Judith Ivy, with Ben Wishaw and Frances McDormand. Now only in theaters.
0: In sports, Bruins declared victory in New York yesterday. They outscored the Islanders. The final score was 4-1. to one. The team is in New York today. They'll skate with the Rangers tonight. Celtics are looking for a win against the Golden State Warriors tonight. They'll take on the team at home at the Garden. It's the first time the Warriors will be in Boston since last year's NBA Finals. In our weather forecast, some snow on the way. The wet weather should start this afternoon. We'll see a mixture of rain and sleet that will continue through tomorrow. A significant accumulation not expected overnight tonight, but one to three inches likely in greater Boston. Tomorrow, a winter weather advisory goes into effect for areas north of Boston at noon today, where they could get higher accumulations. It should all end by Saturday when we'll see partly sunny skies with highs in the upper 30s. It is 38 degrees right now in Boston. <music>
9: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. And I'm A.
10: Martinez in Culver City, California. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says the nation is projected to hit its debt limit today, which raises the stakes of the partisan tug-of-war underway in Washington. Some House Republicans want to leverage must-pass legislation to raise the nation's borrowing authority to extract spending cuts. Now that could mean looking for those cuts in some of the country's most popular social programs. NPR political correspondent Susan Davis previews the confrontation.
3: In order to win the votes to become Speaker, California Republican Kevin McCarthy had to make promises a lot of promises, and one of them was a pledge to fight for federal spending cuts at all turns in this Congress. Here's one of the conservatives who extracted that promise, Texas Republican Chip Roy.
1: Like you only have so many leverage
4: and negotiating points. The debt ceiling is one of those. Nobody in America wants us to blindly just raise the debt ceiling again if we don't get structural reforms around here. Nobody wants that.
3: But President Biden and congressional Democrats do want that, as White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre reiterated earlier this week. Congress must deal with the debt limit and must do so without conditions." The Treasury Department says extraordinary measures to cover the debt will be exhausted by June. If Congress fails to raise it before then, it would result in an unprecedented debt default, which could have catastrophic economic consequences worldwide. Even political brinksmanship around raising the debt limit can have consequences, as it did in 2011 when a standoff between congressional Republicans and the Obama administration roiled the stock market and led to the first-ever credit rating downgrade for the United States government. Here's Obama.
9: Because after witnessing a month of wrangling over raising the debt ceiling, they doubted our political system's ability to act.
3: This time, Republicans are raising the stakes and the demands— First, many want concessions for steep cuts in annual discretionary spending bills that cover every aspect of the federal government except the Pentagon. Nevada Republican Mark Amaday is on the Appropriations Committee, which determines that annual spending. And he points out that non-military discretionary spending is a tiny fraction
8: of what drives the debt. But if you want to be honest about it and you're saying the budget's a big deal, it's like, well, you got to go where the money is.
3: And that money is in entitlements that make up the nation's social safety net. Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security. And if some Republicans want to try to change those, Amadei has a piece of advice for them.
20: Better have your helmet and your chin strap
8: on.
3: The Republican Party does not have a successful track record when it comes to trying to change the social safety net. Former President Bush tried and failed to overhaul Social Security for future retirees. Former Speaker Paul Ryan's support for shifting Medicare from a guaranteed benefit to a voucher system was a core Democratic attack in the 2012 presidential race when he was Mitt Romney's running mate. One liberal group ran a now infamous wordless attack ad that depicted a Paul Ryan lookalike pushing a granny off a cliff as America the Beautiful plays in the background. For deficit hawks like Maya McGuinness, who runs the Nonpartisan Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget, A new round of debating the nation's fiscal future is, on the one hand, quite welcome. We are getting to the point where you just can't delay it much longer at all, because both of the trust funds for those programs are headed towards insolvency in a very short amount of time. But on the other hand, McGinnis says Congress should never flirt with a debt default to try to extract those budget reforms. There should be no discussion of defaulting anywhere. The most important thing is that we lift this debt ceiling without drama. Leslie Dock worked in the Obama administration and now runs the liberal health care advocacy group Protect Our Care. He said Republicans are pushing for a political fight with no clear plan for a policy win with Democrats in control of the Senate and White House.
21: Lighting the fuse and thinking that, you know, you can stomp it down before it reaches dynamite is not a very good strategy.
3: McCarthy faces a tricky balance of assuring the public his party will not allow a debt default, as he did just last week. We don't want to put any fiscal problems to our economy, and we won't. But equally insisting that Republicans will cut spending.
8: We've got to change the way we are spending money wastefully in this country. And we're going to make sure that happens.
3: Right now, he's the only leader at the negotiating table. Susan Davis, NPR News, Washington.
9: All right, there is one wild idea for dealing with the nation's debt ceiling crisis, if it becomes a crisis. It's known as the trillion-dollar coin. NPR political correspondent Danielle Kurtzleben says this notion is not new.
3: The idea leans on a law from the 90s that allows the Treasury to mint commemorative platinum coins of any denomination they want.
10: Okay, so why not just mint a trillion dollar coin and use it to pay a trillion dollars
9: worth of debt? This idea sounds like a joke. In fact, it has been. The TV series The Simpsons once had an episode that played on a similar concept.
25: To make good on this drunken
20: post, Truman authorized the one-time printing of the largest denomination currency ever, a trillion-dollar bill.
9: Our colleague Danielle says this could happen in theory.
3: Print a coin worth a trillion dollars. Then the Treasury deposits the coin at the Fed, and poof, then there's money to keep paying the bills.
9: Now, there is
10: uh, one problem. The U.S. would mint the coin in order to avoid chaos, but doing it
9: would cause some chaos.
3: If you minted that coin, you could be dragging the Fed into a political fight, which is exactly where the Fed doesn't like to be.
9: There are also potential economic problems, according to Moody's Analytics chief economist Mark Zandi.
27: So you own a 10-year bond, you're watching these machinations, gimmicks and legal challenges, and you're saying to yourself, there's a pretty good chance I'm not going to get paid. At some point in the next 10 years. Therefore, you got to pay me more to take this risk or I'm just out of here.
10: Investors would demand higher yields or interest rates on U.S. government bonds. This
9: may explain why the United States has rejected the trillion dollar coin in the past. Maybe Homer Simpson said it best.
25: Ooh, a trillion dollar bill. That's a spicy meatball.
9: Some other news now. New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern surprised her country and the world by saying she will resign. I am leaving because with such a privileged
28: role comes responsibility. The responsibility to know when you are the
9: right person to lead and also when you are not. Ardern became the world's youngest female head of government when she was elected prime minister at the age of 37. Five years later, at age 42... She's had enough. Farida Jalalzai is professor of political science at Virginia Tech, where she studies the role of women as national leaders. Welcome to
23: the program. Good morning. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure.
9: Were you surprised by this announcement?
23: I was absolutely shocked. I had no idea that this announcement was coming. I thought that she would certainly be running in the next elections. And I was receiving many emails and shocked (laughs) messages from my colleagues around the world as a result.
9: What place did she establish for herself, and I suppose we should say for women as world leaders over the last five years?
23: Well, I think that there's a lot to unpack. I think as a leader, just in general, she has been a role model in showing the power of empathy and kindness and compassion, that these traits can really go a long way and they can coincide with strength and determination. And she has, I think, an example that illustrates the importance of pragmatism, the valuing of consulting experts, and understanding that sometimes it makes most sense to pivot given the circumstances, rather than just sticking dogmatically to strategies that aren't effective or even harmful. She was also an expert communicator, especially during times of crisis, and she had a lot of crises to deal with in her five and a half years. And instead of just saying what the public wanted to hear, I think the public took comfort in her saying things that were just honest, but also reinforcing that she would help her nation through unprecedented challenges. Obviously, we think of the importance of her being a woman at the helm. And I think, in general, she shows that true leaders don't just hold power for power's sake, but are motivated by a commitment to a larger agenda. As for women, I think she's someone who has served as an inspiration for many women. Mm -hmm. And we don't see a whole lot of women in high political posts. And so though she's resigning, I think that her influence will be seen for decades to come.
9: When you talk about her approach to crisis, are you thinking about her management of the pandemic where New Zealand, we should recall, shut down, closed its borders for a long time and had very few cases for a long time?
23: Yes, and of course that came with some consequences and some criticisms that they had gone too far. But what she did, I think, really masterfully was prioritize the health of her people above everything. And when you think about the crises that she's dealt with, of course, right now, New Zealand is experiencing economic problems. But I think with her looking ahead during the very beginning of COVID, to how as an island nation that um, relies a great deal on tourism that there could have been a huge economic disruption in New Zealand but strategies that she implemented to make sure that these um, threats were offset from the very beginning and the way that she would on a daily basis communicate with the parliament and with the public and Essentially, when she realized or her government realized that they weren't going to be able to have a zero COVID policy, they pivoted. And I think that's something that her crisis leadership also shows
9: she she got a lot of attention on social media recently when she met with the leader of Finland who is also a woman who is relatively young and they were asked a question about what does it mean that two of you are here and you're you're very young and so forth and i and i believe they they both effectively responded by saying we're here to talk about substance we're here to talk about policy does that say something about ardern's governing style
23: it does because it shows that she's going to be willing to call out inequity and the discrimination that women even at the highest levels experience at the helm and so i think that sends a larger message of how she can lead but also call out inequalities and is a proponent of, of feminism
9: farida Jalalzai is a professor of political science at virginia tech thank you so much
23: thank you it was a pleasure
9: This is NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on Morning Edition, we look at some of the history surrounding the abortion debate, with this weekend marking the 50th anniversary of the Supreme Court decision that had legalized abortion. It's 19 minutes past eight.
24: I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it, and thanks. Just go to WBUR.org.
21: I'm Scott Tong. The king of the dinosaurs, the T-Rex, has long been considered fierce, very large, not so smart. Well, a new study finds that the dinosaur of your nightmares and mine may actually have been more intelligent than we thought. Next time on Here and Now. Today at noon on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: In our forecast, some mixed weather ahead. It should be clear this morning, but rain and sleet move in this afternoon. A winter weather advisory goes into effect in areas north of Boston later today. A coastal flood advisory posted in Boston and some areas south of the city starting tomorrow morning. Tonight, rain, snow, and sleet, not a significant accumulation expected. And tomorrow, looks like we could see 1 to 3 inches of snow in greater Boston. Temperatures will be in the 30s. 30s. For Saturday, it'll be partly sunny with highs in the mid-30s. It's 38 degrees right now in Boston. And this note now, Boston's new monument, the New Embrace statue, is receiving a wide range of reactions, both good and bad. Follow WBUR's podcast The Common to find out why some people in the community say they're disappointed. It's 21 minutes past eight.
16: Support for NPR comes from this station, and from LifeLock by Norton, reminding consumers that sensitive information sent online may not always be secure. Learn more at lifelock.com slash NPR. And from Imaginable Futures, celebrating the hard work, commitment, and achievements of the one in five college students who are parents. More at imaginablefutures.com. And from Fisher Investments, Fisher Investments' team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station.
9: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. May Martinez. this
10: week it'll mark fifty years since the Supreme Court's Roe v. Wade decision that made abortion a constitutionally protected right well, at least for forty nine years in u s. history, though, abortion wasn't always controversial. In fact, in colonial America, it was considered a fairly common practice, a private decision made by women and aided mostly by midwives. But in the mid-1800s, a small group of physicians set out to change that. Led by a zealous young doctor named Horatio Storer, they launched a campaign to make abortion illegal in every state. Here are hosts Ramtin Arabloui and Rund Abdel-Fattah from our history podcast, through line. In
18: 1860, governors of every single state in the U.S. received this letter from the recently established American Medical Association.
26: The evil to society of this crime is evident from the fact that its instances in this country are now to be counted by hundreds of thousands.
18: But there was really only one guy holding the pen. Horatio Storer. Carissa Halgeberg is an associate professor of history at Tulane University. She studied the formation of the anti-abortion movement. Basically, he ghost wrote a letter from the president of the AMA. So it looked like it was coming from the president, but Storer was actually the one who wrote it, saying that the AMA opposes abortion, and he used the language of morality. The letter was pivotal to what historians call the Physician's Crusade Against Abortion. And Storer was making a few key arguments for why abortion should be illegal across the country. First, he introduced a new idea.
6: The child is alive from the moment of conception.
18: That life began at conception. Up till now, people generally agreed that life began when a woman could actually feel life move inside her, known then as quickening. But that wasn't enough for Storer. He campaigned on a moral argument that also tapped into the racial fears of the moment, fears that would eventually inspire a pseudoscientific field of, quote, racial improvement and planned breeding of the population, American eugenics. These racial fears would inspire forced sterilization programs to decrease certain populations, whereas Storer's anti-abortion campaign was trying to increase other populations by focusing on the birth rate for Protestant white women had been declining over the course of the 19th century. So he had fears of what were commonly what was commonly referred to as race suicide that the Anglo stock wasn't going to
29: replenish itself fast enough to keep up with the swells of new immigrants to the United States. And who is going to have power and populate this country and populate the Great Plains and the Great West? Leslie Regan is a professor at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. Well, it is going to be Chinese migrants. It's going to be African-Americans, newly freed people, and Catholics. They are not the ones using abortion, it's our, (laughs) you know, Yankee women who are using abortion, trying to get into medical school, trying to do politics, and they should be at home having babies and taking care of them.
27: Michelle Goodwin is a professor at the University of California, Irvine, in the areas of law and bioethics.
29: They began to say we need white women
2: to use their loins because they're concerned about the blackening and the browning of what is now, what at that point became the United States. And this real concern that when Black people become free,
29: what will this mean for white people? And white women become a key to that.
27: So part of Storr's thinking was that criminalizing abortion would help rebalance the scales of who was being born into this country. But there was more to this strategy. He saw this as a way to finally knock out the competition. Midwives.
18: And so if the AMA could wrest control over the marketplace of abortion, it, w- it would be lucrative to this growing cadre of university-educated, mostly male um, physicians who were beginning to specialize in
2: things like obstetrics and gynecology.
27: So midwives were slandered in this campaign.
29: Described as unsanitary, unclean, as unmoral.
27: And as clueless as the mothers themselves.
29: Saying women do not know. They don't know when they quicken and really makes fun of women's own sensations and knowledge and says, you know, some of them quicken at one month, some of them never quicken at all, and then they have a baby.
26: They may very constantly be recognized by the physician in cases where no sensation is felt by the mother.
29: So there's this scoffing at women's knowledge saying, this is a sin, this is murder, you're killing children.
26: By the moral law, the willful killing of a human being at any stage of its existence is murder.
29: And the general public, and women don't get it. They don't know that. And we need to change the laws. So to help people get it, Storer wrote articles,
18: books, reports, speeches, all to make his views on abortion and women clear. In one lecture called The Origins of Insanity in Women, he advocated for ovariectomies for women who, quote, have become habitually thievish,
26: profane or obscene, despondent or self indulgent, shrewish or fatuous.
18: The solution, as he saw it,
26: remove the cause,
18: a woman's reproductive organs. He was really hostile to women. And that hostility was starting to gain traction. A few years into the campaign, Some states began to pass laws outlawing or restricting abortion. Perhaps the harshest was in Connecticut in 1860. The law got rid of the quickening rule and made abortion a crime for which the abortionist and the woman getting the abortion could be fined and jailed. And over the next few decades, most states across the country would adopt similar laws. By 1880, every single state had a law outlawing abortion on the books. These laws launched a century of criminalization.
10: That was Ronda Abdel Fattah and Ramtin Arablouei. They're the hosts of NPR's History podcast Throughline. Sunday will mark 50 years since the Supreme Court's Roe v. Wade decision. This is NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, the issues surrounding how the U.S. government keeps track of the millions of classified records created every year. And we're inviting you to join us on Monday, January 30th at City Space. Radio Boston host Tiziana Deering will have a conversation in food tasting then with celebrity chef Tiffany Faison. Tickets are available at WBUR.org slash events. It's eight thirty. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Margulies Peruzzi, architects and interior designers dedicated to helping their clients in workplace, science, healthcare, and real estate. More at mparchitectsboston.com.
20: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Congress and the White House are under growing pressure to raise the nation's debt ceiling. The federal government is expected to reach its borrowing limit later today. NPR's Marie Andrusovich says the national debt already tops $31 trillion.
17: When the debt ceiling is reached, short-term solutions go into effect, for example, reallocating funds or suspending certain new investments. These so-called extraordinary measures keep the wheels greased until early June when a showdown is expected. Speaker Kevin McCarthy is calling for cuts to the budget in exchange for raising the limit, but the White House thinks the debt ceiling should be raised without concessions.
20: A trial is underway in California where Elon Musk is being sued by shareholders of Tesla. The suit alleges tweets from Musk in 2018 about a potential buyout that never happened cost them millions of dollars. At the time, Musk tweeted that he'd lined up the financing to take the electric car maker private. Nima Ramani is president of West Coast Trial Lawyers. The plaintiffs are
11: arguing that Musk knew the tweets were false and misleading when they were made. And Musk's lawyers are saying, no, this was just his intent to take the company private. And that was always his intent and what he would have done had shareholders allowed it.
20: That trial should last about three weeks. This is NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Federal prosecutors are charging a gun dealer in Littleton with selling guns linked to a shooting in Boston. They say 28-year-old Corey Daigle knew that three pistols he sold were actually intended for someone who's underage. Three pistols prosecutors say Daigle sold were found at the scene of a shootout in Hyde Park last year, and three people were hurt in that shooting. The Boston Globe reports that federal federal agents searched Daigle's house and seized almost 100 guns. Massachusetts is getting more than seven million dollars in federal aid for medical sites that the state set up at the height of the pandemic. Those sites were used for people who were homeless and had COVID. The money from the Federal Emergency Management Agency will reimburse the state for the outpatient treatment sites that were set up in five communities. FEMA says those locations reduced the strain on the state's hospital system. So far, FEMA has given the state more than $1 billion in pandemic reimbursement grants. Former state Senator Diana DiZoglio is now Massachusetts state auditor. She was sworn into the role in her hometown of Methuen last night. During the ceremony, DiZoglio reiterated her campaign promise to improve oversight of government spending.
30: Financial audits are critical to government transparency and ensuring that your tax dollars are spent wisely. But the Auditor's Office has the ability to perform other types of audits as well that can help ensure government accountability and equity.
0: DeSaglio promised to use money saved by the state to pursue social and environmental justice programs. The time is 8.33.
8: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com.
0: In sports, Bruins are coming off a win in the first of two road games in New York. They defeated the Islanders last night 4-1. to one. They'll hit the ice with the Rangers in Madison Square Garden tonight. Celtics are playing for their eighth straight win tonight. They take on the Golden State Warriors at the Garden. In our weather forecast, we'll see clear skies this morning, but wet weather moves in later this afternoon. A coastal flood advisory is posted in Boston and some areas south of the city starting early early tomorrow morning. A winter weather advisory goes into effect in areas north of Boston this afternoon. We'll see rain mixing with snow throughout the evening tonight. No significant accumulation expected in greater Boston. Tomorrow though, one to three inches possible before the snow stops
16: tomorrow night. It's 38 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from your part-time controller specializing in nonprofit accounting, your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs, remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com.
9: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Stephen Skeep in Washington, D.C. And I'm May Martinez in
10: Culver City, California. The U.S. government generates millions of classified documents each year.
9: And we've been learning just how difficult it can be to keep track of all that sensitive material, even at the White House. To find out how the wider government handles these records, we've called
10: on NPR national security correspondent Greg Myrie. Greg, President Biden and former President Trump are both under investigation for the way they've handled classified material. Are the rules at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue different than other parts of the government?
27: Well, generally they're the same, but they do differ in one. One significant way. When presidents leave office, they have to turn over all government records, including the classified material, to the National Archives. And this isn't the case for other government agencies. They keep those records at their offices so they can continue to use them. So a classified document at the CIA can be kept in the same filing cabinet for years. But at the White House, it has to be packed up and moved when an administration changes, and so this could make it vulnerable to some sort of mishandling.
10: And the cases involving the current and former president are focused on paper documents. Uh, Greg, it's the 21st century. I mean, why aren't classified documents digital?
27: Well, most are now electronic, but some are still printed. Let's just consider one important document, the president's daily brief it's been printed and put between a leather-bound covers for decades and it still is now President Obama was the first and only president to take it on an iPad but other presidents still prefer to get a physical version accompanied by an actual briefer and as a rule, paper documents are easier to mishandle even by national security professionals. I spoke about this with retired CIA officer Larry Pfeiffer. He also served at the White House where he ran the Situation Room when Barack Obama was president and
13: Joe Biden was vice president. There's a level of human frailty here that just plays into the situation. and. I've known several people who have retired and after they retire they're going through their box and it's like whoa how did that get in here and they you know they call back to the building some security officer comes out picks it up everybody's fine with it
10: so it sounds like there's more classified material out there and no one and no one knows about it.
27: Yeah, that's that's undoubtedly true. And here's the irony. If you're a junior staffer, the likelihood of mishandling classified records is pretty low. To see that kind of information, you'd go into a secure room at your agency, you'd walk in empty-handed, you'd get briefed and read some classified documents, then you walk out empty-handed. You really can't accidentally walk off with documents. But it's easier to make that mistake at the top levels of government. Here's Glenn Gerstel, former legal Counsel at the National Security Agency.
7: An official, usually a more senior official, who has both unclassified and classified documents in their workspace on their desk. I know of one case where someone had a three-ring binder and the first 30 or 40 pages were all unclassified and they didn't realize that in the back was an appendix that had a classified document.
10: Always got to go all the way to the back. Uh, We've been talking about accidents, uh, Greg. What about cases where government officials are, are intentionally trying to pass on sensitive stuff?
27: Well, for starters, it would be a crime if someone in the government hands over classified material to, say, a foreign government. And if a person doesn't want to get caught, they'd probably share that material verbally, not passing on a physical document or an electronic record. That creates a trail. We've seen increased prosecutions in recent years. The key reason is technology, which means better forensics. NPR's Greg Myrie. Greg, thanks. My pleasure.
9: Protesters in Lima, Peru are calling for the resignation of the president and new elections. At least 50 people have been killed during these demonstrations. You may recall that the former president Pedro Castillo tried to dissolve Congress recently and was promptly removed from office. Now there's a new president, Dina Boluarte, and the protesters blame her for the unrest. NPR's Carrie Kahn reports from Lima.
15: Like other cities, Peru's capital, Lima, is under special emergency orders limiting protests. Los a que se retire, señores, por favor. This officer tells a group camped out in front of a church that means they have to move on. A phalanx of officers in riot gear stare on from across the street as the crowd shouts back. La le la decir, One woman yells, what are you gonna do, shoot us? She's referring to at least 50 who have died in confrontations with security forces in the past month, ever since former President Pedro Castillo attempted to rule by decree. Once arrested and impeached, his vice president, Dina Boluarte, took power. That woman is deaf to what is happening to us outside the capital, says Dina Lopez, a mother of three and potato vendor from the Andean city of Ayacucho. Supporters of former President Castillo like her have been blocking highways and taking over airports to protest his ouster.
17: But she says out there,
15: no one pays attention to us, to our rights. So now thousands are bringing their list of grievances straight to Lima. What began as marches in support of Castillo has morphed into wider demands for justice, the resignation of President Boluarte and a new constitution. Boluarte says she's not
30: leaving. She
15: says historic needs of Peru's poor and indigenous communities can't be addressed through violence. Political scientist at Lima's Pacific University, Alberto Vergara, says the divide between Peru's Lima elite and the rest of the country is nothing new. However, he says these prolonged protests are unusual because now we have 50 dead, and we're in a path to have more. He fears given Peru's dysfunctional political system, more violence is inevitable. Indeed, Peru has had six presidents in the last four years with one leader lasting just six days. Vergara says Peru's mediocre politicians are the threat here, not tyranny, which usually leads to democratic demise.
9: Peru is perhaps showing us that Chaos and disorder can also be the opposite of democracy.
15: As the capital braces for more protest, Lima's conservatives, like Congressman Jorge Montoya, warns of possible terrorism. He claims without evidence, the marchers are backed by communists and drug traffickers. No no, no need no need he says there's we need no reason to dialogue with terrorists carc- and insists more force is needed. He even says the protesters were responsible for the deaths. That's absurd. There's no proof of that, says Juan Miguel Hugo, a leading human rights lawyer. He says police used excessive force, shooting civilians in the head, chest, and limbs. Protesters like this woman who came to the capital from rural Ayacucho says they aren't backing down. She would only give her first name, Tanya, out of fear of government retaliation. She says our eyes have been opened and we will continue fighting. Carrie Khan, NPR News, Lima, Peru.
9: this is NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on Morning Edition, the offshore vineyard wind project is moving forward. We'll talk with WBUR's Miriam Wasser, who visited the Cape to see how the project is going. In our weather forecast, sunshine this morning. Wet weather moves in later this afternoon, though. Rain and sleet this afternoon, really, through tomorrow. Temperatures tonight will be around 30 degrees. No significant snow accumulation tonight, but 1 to 3 inches expected in greater Boston before the snow ends tomorrow. On Saturday, it should be partly sunny with highs in the 30s. And it's 38 degrees right now in Boston.
8: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Handel & Haydn Society. Feel the adrenaline-packed power of Beethoven's Heroic Symphony tomorrow and Sunday at Symphony Hall. Tickets at HandelandHaydn.org.
0: In business news, a group providing housing for LGBT asylum seekers is buying another property in Worcester. The LGBT Asylum Task Force tells the Worcester Business Journal that the location will be able to house 40 people at a time. People who go there will be connected to support services and attorneys. A new list from Needham based TripAdvisor ranks Salem as an up and coming travel destination in the U.S. Salem came in. And at number three for its history and aesthetic appeal, Camden, Maine also made the top 10 for its seacoast location. The time is 8.45.
8: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Sony Pictures Classics with Turn Every Page, a new film about the 50-year relationship between writer Robert Caro and his editor, Robert Gottlieb, now playing in theaters.
0: You're listening to Morning Edition on 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Massachusetts has ambitious climate plans. The state is legally required to have net zero emissions by 2050. And to get there, a lot is riding on offshore wind. WBUR's Miriam Wasser took a trip to the Cape yesterday where tangible progress is being made on the country's first large offshore wind project, Vineyard Wind. She joins us to talk about this. Good morning, Miriam. Good morning, Deb. So no turbines in the water yet, but a lot happening.
28: Tell us what you saw in Barnstable yesterday. So I started at Covels Beach, which is where electricity from Vineyard Winds turbines is going to make landfall and connect into the grid. Workers have dug two deep trenches that connect to these big metal tubes that run under the beach and a few hundred feet into the ocean. And then earlier this week, workers finished pulling cables from offshore through those tubes under the beach and into the trench. And you might be thinking, pulling cables under a beach, why is that so exciting? But it was a really monumental moment in this project. And here's how Vineyard Wind CEO Klaus Moeller put it. He was at the beach yesterday.
7: Pulling the cable in and connecting it with the, uh, with the onshore cable is, is sort of the, the milestone that really connects offshore and, and onshore.
28: So this is really the start of the offshore part of this offshore wind project. Mm. And, and what else did you see, Mariam? So there were these two big boats and then several smaller boats anchored several hundred feet offshore. And these boats are helping to lay the power cables under the ocean floor. So one end of the line goes under the beach, and then the other end goes out to sea. And Deb, I know we can't get too into the weeds here, but I do just want to tell you about how the cables are laid because I think it's really cool. So one of these boats has this special machine that essentially blasts water at the ocean floor to make a narrow ditch. It then lays the cable in that ditch and then covers it up. And it does this in one pass. It just kind of slowly moves across the ocean floor like this with relatively minimal impact. That is cool. It is. Um, Yeah. So so,
0: (laughs) okay, when this is done, those
28: cables then plug into the turbines. Sort of. So those cables are going to land at a large offshore platform about 40 miles off the coast. And that platform is going to have it's like a whole big electrical substation on it. And the project's 62 turbines will plug into that. So I know this sounds really complicated because it is, but just from a sheer engineering perspective, it's kind of astounding how big this all is and just how many moving parts there are. Hmm. And then what happens with the cable once it's onshore and connected? Okay, so great question. And my other stop yesterday was at the electrical substation Vineyard Wind is building in Barnstable and the substation is about five miles from the beach, so the power cables will run underground to get there. This involved digging up all these streets, which Vineyard Wind has done, and I was told that they plan to install the underground cables in the next few months.
0: Hmm, hopefully before summer, right? I think everybody (laughs) wants to know, so so what work is
28: left and, and when will this be up and running? So the turbine components will start arriving from Europe in April, Vineyard Wind will start putting them in the ocean this summer. The offshore substation that I mentioned a moment ago will also arrive from Europe on a big boat and then get anchored to the ocean floor this summer. Um, There are still more cables to lay in the ocean, but the company says the project will be generating power by the end of the year. It won't be fully built out by then, and that'll happen sometime next year. But assuming everything goes as planned, this will be a huge milestone for the state and the country. Hmm. So it's smooth sailing from here. It'll be up and running Mm -hmm. soon. Well, let's not get ahead of ourselves. Vineyard Wind looks to be on track, but as we've reported before, another big project coming down the pike, Commonwealth Wind, is facing some big financing issues. So the company behind it told the state late last year that it wants to pull out of its contract, but the Department of Public Utilities has said no. So there's a lot to watch in the offshore wind world this year.
0: All right. Well, I'm sure we'll be uh, checking back in with you. WBUR's Miriam Wasser. Thanks for being with us. Anytime, Deb. You're listening to 90.9 WBUR, and stay with us at noon today for Here and Now. Scott Tong is on the line with us to tell us about what's coming up on today's program. Good morning, Scott.
21: Good morning, Deb. Okay, first, I have my own offshore wind story. Mm. Uh, I was in New Bedford, Massachusetts, not far from you, a couple years ago, and there was a turbine blade that was on the shore, and I said, I'm just going to time myself for how long it takes to walk from one end to the other, I think it was 43 seconds. These things are gigantic. Mm, um, wow. Yeah, but moving on to today's show. Um, <laughs> the debt ceiling fight in Capitol Hill yeah, you know is one. arguably the great broken record in American politics. Mm. We're going to look back on how it really inflicted financial pain on the U.S. economy back in 2011. Uh, The state of Illinois has a new ban on semi-automatic guns. We recall the horrific shooting at the July 4th parade outside Chicago in Highland Park. That law is being challenged, and a judge plans an initial ruling by the end of the week. And what's going to happen to TikTok? Will it be banned in this country? We see governments uh, banning their workers from having the app and universities, so we'll get an update there, Deb.
0: All right. Scott, thanks so much. Thanks. That's Here and Now, noon today, here on WBUR.
8: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, providing small businesses with cybersecurity and fiber solutions at speeds up to 10 gigs. Comcast
9: Business, powering possibilities. Hey, this is Steve Hinsky with the Morning Edition.
24: Mary Louise Kelly from All Things Considered. And I'm Lisa Mullins at WBUR.
9: You know, my favorite car ever was my parents' Chevrolet Impala. My favorite all-time car was a little red Mini. My parents' red VW Bug painted white to make it look bigger. I don't know where that car is today, but I do know that an old car can be really valuable. Favorite or not, your current car can be turned into all things considered. It can be turned into Morning Edition.
24: Go to WBUR.org.
0: In our forecast, it looks like we'll see rain and sleet later this afternoon. Not a significant accumulation expected tonight night but tomorrow the mix of snow and rain will likely result in about one to three inches of snow in greater boston a winter weather advisory is posted for areas north of the city right now it is 38 degrees in boston
4: the treasury department goes to what you might call yellow alert after the debt ceiling is upon us Marketplace
24: Morning Report is supported by JLL, a commercial real estate leader using data and technology to solve today's complex real estate challenges. Learn more at JLL.com.
2: JLL, see a brighter way.
4: I'm David Brancaccia. The federal government expects to hit its upper limit on borrowing today. It will then start what the Treasury Department calls extraordinary measures, essentially accounting maneuvers to keep everything from the military to Medicare functioning until Congress sorts itself out. Marketplace's Nova Safo is here with more on that.
6: Yeah, and who knows when that'll happen, David. We appear headed for another round of brinkmanship over raising the debt limit. Republicans in the House say they want concessions, spending cuts. The White House says it will not negotiate over the debt limit. We've heard all of this before, of course. We had a showdown in 2021. Republicans eventually relented and the debt ceiling was raised a day after the deadline the Treasury gave for running out of options to pay its bills. Now, this time around, the House Republican leadership is facing pressure to hold firm. And according to the Treasury, we have probably until early June or maybe a bit before that when accounting maneuvers will be exhausted and the federal government runs out of money.
4: Lots of warnings that not raising the debt limit would be very disruptive. Some use the word catastrophic. But what happens if Washington waits too long to sort this out?
6: Yeah, uh, sorted out at the last minute, we can look back to 2011 during the Obama administration. There was again a standoff with congressional Republicans. A deal was voted on and signed by the president, but it came just hours before the Treasury's final deadline, and the damage was done. Standard & Poor's downgraded the country's debt rating by one notch. That hadn't happened before. Other credit rating agencies didn't follow suit at the time, and that probably was a saving grace, but a lower credit rating threatens to increase the federal government's borrowing costs. Right now, we're spending a bit more than $50 billion a month just on debt interest payments, and that could go up, which would be the opposite of what Republicans want to achieve.
4: Nova, thank you. As inflation increasing increased steadily over the past few years, people of color and low-income consumers were hit the hardest. Now, that's from a new report on inequality out of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. Marketplace's Nancy Marshall-Genzer has that.
24: The New York Fed report says the inflation rate for black households was more than a percentage point above the national average last February. African-American and Latino households are more likely to live paycheck to paycheck and spend more of their money on necessities. And those necessities all got more expensive over the past few years. 47-year-old Tammy Gates is an African-American single mom in Jacksonville, Florida. She's seen that firsthand. I need to pay rent. I need to pay a car. I have to drive. I have a payment on that. I have to have gas. Gates says her grocery bill has about doubled since the start of the pandemic. She had to move after her landlord wanted to almost double her rent. The New York Fed report says inflation inequality became less pronounced as inflation eased in the second half of last year. But Gates says she's still struggling to make ends meet. I'm Nancy Marshall-Genzer for
4: Marketplace. Checking markets, Dow and S&P futures are each down about eight-tenths of a percent. NASDAQ futures are down nine-tenths of a percent. Marketplace Morning
2: Report is supported by Progressive Insurance with Snapshot. Learn more about Snapshot at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Snapshot, not available in California, North Carolina, or from all agents and by Palo Alto Networks. Palo Alto Networks delivers what's next in cybersecurity innovation to protect
4: today's digital way of life. Learn more at paloaltonetworks.com. For the cryptocurrency Bitcoin, like all investments, it depends when you bought it. Well, Bitcoin is up 25% this month. It's still down 66% from a peak in November of 2021. But the ecosystem that supports cryptocurrency is in trouble. The recent bankruptcy of the digital asset exchange FTX. Today, the Wall Street Journal is reporting that a crypto lender, Genesis, could file for bankruptcy protection soon. All this is making it tough for the companies that use electricity-sucking computer power to create new cryptocurrency, a math and software form of mining, Marketplace's Lily Jamali reports.
30: Across North America, shares of crypto mining firms have crashed, falling as much as 90 percent, sometimes more, over the last year. That includes Canada's BitFarms, where Ben Gagnon is the chief mining officer.
13: The biggest thing is probably just the Bitcoin price in general. Uh, It's fundamentally a different business when your revenue is cut by 70 percent.
30: Meanwhile, the cost of a key input shot up as the global energy crisis set in, says Ben Harper of Luxor Technologies, which provides software services to the industry.
13: You have this huge increase in power prices that's happened over the last year, and that's squeezed margins from the cost side.
30: Back when times were good, crypto mining farms like this sprawling and very loud facility we visited in Messina, New York, a year ago, were plowing cash into more mining computers. Stacks of them were set to be installed. Crypto's downturn has culminated in the collapse of crypto exchange FTX in November and the arrest of founder Sam Bankman Freed on charges including wire fraud and conspiracy. But despite the spectacular demise of FDX, a lot of people in the industry remain positive.
5: It's not the end of the world. It's not the end of crypto.
30: Like Russell Can with Core Scientific, a crypto miner that continues to operate while in bankruptcy protection. Environmental groups say crypto's travails have helped them gain traction. Seneca Lake Guardian has been fighting a crypto miner operating at a fossil fuel power plant in upstate New York. Yvonne Taylor is the group's vice president. It's pretty validating because, you know, we've been raising the alarm and shouting our concerns at the top of our lungs for literally years about this facility. Taylor's group helped push for the nation's first statewide partial moratorium on new crypto mining, signed in November, arguing those projects are at odds with New York's carbon reduction goals. But environmental advocates say for them, this can't be a state-by-state fight. After all, if crypto miners lose ground in one place, many are prepared to pack up and move to another. I'm Lily Jamali for Marketplace.
4: And you get over to Party City much? From the company's perspective, many of you just said no. And the retailer has filed for bankruptcy protection. It just got a $150 million bankruptcy loan to keep paying employees and suppliers with a view to keeping the concept going. I do see Party City still has plenty of stock on hand for an item labeled the Over-the-Hill Old Man Cane. $16 to give as a gift if your worst enemy has a milestone birthday coming up. It's Marketplace Morning Report from APM American Public Media.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. In our forecast, looks like wet weather moves in this afternoon. A mixture of rain and sleet and snow. Not a significant accumulation expected in greater Boston overnight, but about 1 to 3 inches before the snow ends tomorrow night. A winter weather advisory goes into effect in areas north of Boston this afternoon where higher accumulations are expected. It's 38 degrees in Boston at 9 o'clock. Stay with us. The BBC is next.
14: Is there a better way to care for dementia patients? The Netherlands and France think so. They've created dementia villages where residents can live freely despite their memory loss.
15: Because it has to do with thinking different and looking at that person in front of you and looking at what does this person need. Now,
14: Can it work here in the U.S.? That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station.
9: I'm executive producer of podcasts Ben Brock Johnson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR News
8: Station.